0: Welcome to Island Baptist Church. Today's sermon is Daniel, Powerful Prophecy. This is the part of the program where we pull out our Bibles. Because we, we learn the Bible here. I know it says Baptist out in the front, but there's a bigger B going on here. It's called the Bible. We believe in the Bible. If the Baptist seeks to be about the Bible, we will cease to be Baptist. Because we're only interested in the Bible. We're not here, we're, this is not about denominations. This is about the scriptures inspired by God written for us remember when the Bible when you're reading the Bible you're not waiting for God to speak to you because as you're reading the Bible that is God speaking when you're reading the Bible that is God speaking now what he's saying to you now that's another question but it is God speaking don't don't say that the Bible don't say that the Bible is an instrument through which God speaks because I can I I would like to think I'm that kind of thing too I'm definitely not the Bible I'm an instrument through which God speaks. That's my goal. It should be my goal as a pastor. But, but, but the Bible is not an instrument through which God speaks. The Bible is God speaking. There is a difference. There is a hierarchical difference and a very important one. We're going to be in Daniel nine. If you've been with us together, we've been looking at Daniel. Daniel's a tough book, especially after chapter six. Uh, Daniel is because uh, it, it gets into a thing called prophecy, and prophecy prophecy's tough. Prophecy can be convoluted in some ways. It's certainly uh, rendered into signs. But I will will say and underline this that it's given to you in the scriptures because God wants you to know it. And it's not as simple as A, B, C, John 3, 16. I know that. And there's a reason for that because there are hierarchies of importance also in the scriptures. God definitely wants you to know that he sent his son Jesus to you. And that you simply believing on him can have everlasting life. And that is certainly not a convoluted message. That The, the end, end times messages, though, can be convoluted, can be difficult, not impossible. Uh, it is important. It, it, as always, we follow rules of Bible interpretation. And even more important, we come to the issues of, of prophecy. But we've been looking at Daniel 7. I'm sorry, Daniel. Yeah, Daniel 7. And we look into the past couple Sundays at the Antichrist. And I don't know if all of you were here for that. I know probably you weren't and uh they were some pretty steep sermons and some pretty steep bible studies and some stuff that was hard for us to get through and and uh as i said we're going to be continuing in daniel and so daniel doesn't get easier uh daniel continues to have these these messages and and imageries here that are that are tough for us to deal with and we're going to be looking at one of those here in in daniel 9 and it's an application of some of the things we saw with the children's sermon you got a little boy up there thinking he's darth vader and i'm not saying that daniel ever thought he was any kind of personal power but certainly Daniel 9 is going to be demonstrating to us what God can do through a person who's yielded to him. Maybe you may be here today and feeling frustrated and discouraged because of your efforts and, and energies and stuff have come to, to naught. And uh, I would definitely encourage you to consider Daniel 9 because we're going to see in Daniel 9 what God can do through a person who's yielded him. Daniel comes to God and asks for the moon. Uh, that's effectively what's happening in Daniel 9. The moon is, is that God will be forgiving and gracious to his people who have been disobedient to him and continue to be disobedient to him even after 70 years. And he says that to him because he reads in the book of Jeremiah, who had written 70 years before, that, that God would release his people from, from captivity for 70 years. 70 years they've been out of their own land. They've been in captivity. They've been, they've been uh, their city was destroyed. Their temple was destroyed. And for 70 years, they've been sitting in some other country in total captivity. And God, he's praying to God that God would come through and say, God, please, I pray that you would do what, as far as I can tell, you shouldn't do. I mean, Daniel, honestly, he's just looking at it and saying, man, I wouldn't forgive these people. But please do. Please forgive us. Please allow us to go back to our country. Please allow us to, to rebuild our city. Please allow us to, to rebuild our temple and, and to be gathered together as a people. And so he's begging God through this chapter and praying and fasting and seeking God. And, and God comes to him with an answer that's not the answer. I shouldn't say that. It is an answer, but it's way bigger than he thought. Effectively, what happens here is, is Daniel is asking for, even though he's shooting at the moon, he's still asking for a small thing compared to what God can do. So God doesn't give him that small thing. God gives him something bigger. God gives him the small thing and something bigger. He comes to him and, and, and he's asking God for effectively a quick fix solution. Let us go back to our country. Let us rebuild our, our temple. Let us rebuild our city. An immediate solution, a quick fix solution compared to the permanent and all-encompassing solution God's going to give him here with the prophecy that we're going to find at the end of the, cha- the chapter. We're going to be in Daniel 24 through Twenty-seven this morning, and he comes to him through the person of an angel. We'll take a look at verse twenty. Now, now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sins and the sins of my people, Daniel's been praying for some some time, presenting my supplications before the Lord my God on behalf of the holy mountain of my God, that is Jerusalem. While I was still speaking and in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, notice we kept skip chapter eight. You say, Pastor Bill, why did we skip from chapter seven to chapter eight? Because. Because that's what we did. We skipped from chapter seven to chapter <laughs> chapter nine. Uh, chapter eight basically is just filling in blanks within chapter chapter seven, and we've already filled in those blanks together, and so we've moved on from that. Fills in the issues of Persia and and Greek uh, countries that were to come and to be dominant over Israel. Just so you know, but it's there, and you're welcome to read it. It's certainly, inspired text for sure. But but we're moving on to this prophecy now of this that's taking place, and this angel Gabriel comes and he's seen him in the previous chapter or the previous vision as far as Daniel's concerned. This man, Gabriel, he says, whom he's seen in the previous vision, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening sacrifice, so about 5.30 in the afternoon. And uh, he sees this vision of this angel coming to him. And we otherwise know, now you probably didn't know Gabriel was a part of the Old Testament, did you? Think of Angel Gabriel, who are you thinking of? Christmas time, right? Mary, Joseph, the baby Jesus and the manger and the you know the angels appearing in the heavens, and he coming to Mary saying, "You're going to be with uh, with child, even though you've not known a man." And all that—that's the same angel, same name, same 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 dude. If we can refer to him that way. Um, First, him as a man because he apparently doesn't have wings, and I'll let you deal with that question uh, later on. Nonetheless, he he comes to him and gives him this incredible prophecy. So what we're going to be considering together, as I would submit to you, one of the most amazing, if not the most amazing prophecy in the entire Bible and not in the sense of necessarily what it points to as much as how precise it is. And because a lot of people say, well, the Bible's ambiguous and we can't understand it in the Bible. And God, God does leave a lot of details out. And there's a good reason for that. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. There's a reason why God doesn't come to you today and tell you all the details for the next 10 or 15 years of your life. You know that he can do that by the way, he does know those things, but he's not doing it. And he's probably not going to ever do it with any of us For a very good reason but he does come and give us a very specific detail about the first coming of his son and by the way this prophecy here that we find the last three verses of daniel 9 sir isaac newton famously said about this prophecy he said that we could stake the truth of christianity upon this one prophecy the old testament now old testament not new testament old testament sir isaac newton was a was a massive theologian and great christian man and we've seen with regards to Jesus' second coming, we spent a couple Sundays looking at that, and if you weren't here, you need to go to our YouTube channel, and you need to go to our, not right now, but, but, uh, but uh, or to our, our, our um, islandbaptist.org, islandbaptist.info, our website, and you can hear those sermons, and there's a lot of good details in there. We talked about Jesus' second coming, we talked about the details of that, and we saw, among other things, maybe the most important thing about Jesus' second coming is that no one knows the day or the hour. He says that to the disciples. He even says, no one knows the day or the hour, not the angels in heaven, not the Son of Man, speaking of himself. While he was on earth, he was restricted in his knowledge as part of what it meant to become a human being and become a part of us. Of course, he's not restricted anymore, now back with the Father. But he restricted himself in many, many capacities. He restricted, I mean, God's omnipresent. Where was Jesus? Jesus was only where Jesus could be as a physical person. He restricted himself. There was lots of other restrictions. That, well, I don't, we don't fully understand what all it meant for Jesus to become a man in his 33 years of life and three years of ministry here on planet earth before his death and resurrection uh, to pay for our sins. We don't fully understand all that came about by that but, or that, that, that transpired because of that. But he says no one knows the day or the hour of his second coming. What we're going to find out about his first coming, though, is that the exact opposite was true. Not only could we know the day, not, we could know the day, we could know the day, we could know everything because he's going to nail it down for us here in Daniel 9. 500 years before Jesus comes to earth the first time, God nails down a particular day in the life and ministry of his son to the day he does that. So let me ask you this. If you were God, by the way, we're glad that you're not. So glad. So glad I'm not God. So glad that you aren't God, because we would so foul things up. I mean, this earth would have gone downhill. We would have come apart a long time ago if we had been in charge. But if you were, and you were sending your son to rescue the world from their sins, to die and pay the penalty for the sinners just like you and I, to hang on a cross, to be born to an impoverished couple, to live a impoverished life, to, to teach and preach and do the things and miracles that he did and to ultimately die and pay for the sins of the world and to resurrect to prove that he was a savior. Of all those things that happened in those 33 years, in particular the three years of his ministry, which one of those days, only pick one, would you pick to tell the whole world 500 years before that they should expect him on that day? That very day. Which one of the days? I mean, you got, your, you got his birth, that's a big day. He hung a star in the heavens to guide the, the, the wise men out of the Middle East all the way there. A year and a half, maybe travel to get there. That's a big day. By the way, the scripture tells us that he was going to be born in Bethlehem. Tells us there's going to be a star. Tells us several things, but it doesn't tell us the day. So you can cross that one off. Or maybe you would say, well, obviously, if you're not going to do his birth, then you're going to do either his crucifixion or his resurrection. The Bible does tell us the dates of those things in the sense of where they fall in the calendar. But they don't tell us the year. So... It's going to be in April, right? But we don't, we just don't, it can be a hundred years, 300 years. It turned out to be 500 years. I mean, which one of these Aprils is it going to be? It wasn't one of those days. Which day would you pick? Well, the day he picks is maybe unlikely to us as Americans, Westerners, but it was definitely not an unlikely day with regards to God, certainly. And obviously it would have been not so much to the Jews, nonetheless. So anyway, if he was going to predict a day, what would it be? It, but again, if God sat down with you, he doesn't do this often in the scriptures. I mean, this is a rare prophecy. In fact, to my knowledge, and, it's, and, and I don't know everything, but to my knowledge, there's not another prophecy like this in which God pins down a particular day this far in advance. He does not. This is a very unique prophecy. 483 years in advance, God pins down one day in the life of Jesus. So, but there's a reason why God doesn't do this on a regular basis, and here's the very reason why. If God came to you and said, like I said before, I'm gonna show you the details of the next 10 years of your life. How many would like to know the, next, the details of the next 10 years of your life? Come on, raise your hand. Come on, don't be a liar, we know. Right, you would like it, right? You would like it, but you wouldn't like it very long. Here's the reason why. Because as soon as you get that information, your little evil heart starts messing with it. And that's the reason why he's not going to tell you. See, if, if, if he's a shepherd, we call him that, right? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That means you're a sheep. As a shepherd, you don't tell the sheep where they're going. You don't point to a mountain and say, that's where we're going, guys. I'll meet you over there. You don't do that with sheep. Here I'll tell you why. Even though they know where they're going, they will never get there. They will die, something will kill them, something will eat them, because as soon as you tell a sheep that that's where we're going, one of the worst things is gonna happen in his entire life is gonna to happen to him right then, he's gonna to cease to follow the shepherd and start following the vision. We got a lot of preaching going on, on television today, and I don't know why you watch these crazy guys. All about, they predicting all kinds of stuff and telling us all kinds of stuff. God doesn't do that. And those guys are not about God. They're about, you know, you send them money, And they will give you another prophecy. And if you're getting duped by that, um, stop it. Because they're telling you stuff that God would never do. God is not going to point at a a distant spot and say, go there, sheep, because that's where you're going. Because what you're going to do is you're going to follow the prophecy. And you're not going to follow follow the one who makes the prophecy. And that's always a mistake. And God is never going to do that. So very rarely are you going to find him laying down a particular day in the scriptures, but he does it this time He does it this time You think about the second coming of jesus if you knew exactly when that was If we could know the day of the hour, how would you be operating? Here's how I would do it Let's say jesus comes today and says it's going to be 39 years. So how I would prorate my sins (laughs) Well, I got 39 years left I mean we got time to work on this, you know 29 years 18 years, you know, that's my sinful heart would do that I would have one more temptation in my life if I knew when the reckoning was coming If I knew when I was going to step out of this life God came to me and told me the next 10 years. Well, i'm going to be dead after 10 years Well, I could prorate that, you know, I got a little sins I could you know less this year It's kind of like a, a, a sin amortization chart, you know less this year a little bit less this you know Uh, A little less interest, you know, and then finally, you know, getting everything paid up before we get to the end kind of thing. I'm afraid that's exactly the way it would be. Nevertheless, God did want the world, listen, to know an exact day in the life and ministry of Jesus in his first coming. And he pins it down here for us in Daniel 9, a very powerful, amazing prophecy. And the scope of this prophecy is larger than Jesus' first coming, even though we're only going to be looking at it. The, the scope of the prophecy is his second coming all the way through to verse 27. speaks of the Antichrist. It speaks of the second coming of Christ, the abomination of desolation, all these things. If you should, needed to be here last couple Sundays to know what those things are, or, or you may already know, and that's awesome. Uh, but but uh, it's, we're not going to be dealing with those things. And again, Daniel is only asking for t- temporary stuff here. He's, this is not the answer to his prayer. His prayer is, please forgive us right now. Let us go back to our city right now. Let us rebuild it. Let us go back to being a people. And God does allow them to do that, except the answer is way bigger than that. He takes them all the way through to the first coming of Christ, all the way through to the second coming of Christ. The scope is massive here, but it reminds me of... Uh, Daniel's an awesome guy and like I said Daniel as far as he's concerned is shooting the moon and I'm not trying to say Daniel should have been smarter or better or whatever I'm saying Daniel is just like us in fact he's better than most of us Ephesians chapter 3 though tells us the problem with Daniel and all of us is very clear to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think you can't think of it God is beyond that So it's not that you're not just asking for the moon or thinking beyond the moon. God's got bigger stuff than that. According to the power that works within us, God is bigger than whatever you're asking for. So when he's asking God, and some of you may be ticked at God today because God's not doing what you want. And let me just first of all say he doesn't work for you. And let me also say that God's no doesn't mean no. It means I've got something better for you. Is it okay for him to be a father and say, no, sweetie, that's not the best thing for you? I've got something better. Is that okay? You'll like it if you'll go with that. You'll really like how God works because he is only interested in your good. He gave us his one and only son. How will you not also along with them graciously give us all things? He's already done the big things. Little stuff is all you're asking for. He's got bigger fish to fry. You need to trust him. So this prophecy, first of all, is a prophecy to the Jews and through the Jews. Notice verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people. Who's he talking to? This is Gabriel speaking to Daniel, and Daniel is what kind of people? He's an Italian, right? No. He's an American. No. What is he? He's Jewish. Daniel was born a Jew, died a Jew, he's going to resurrect, come back as a Jew. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people, read that the Jews, and for your holy city. Is that New York? Is that South Padre Island? Where is that? Jerusalem. So this is a very narrow prophecy for a very specific group of people in a very specific city. It's assuming that we know this. So first of all, it's a prophecy to the Jews and through the Jews. It's the nature of all of God's prophecies. God, partic- God picked out of the world a particular people called the Jews through which to do his stuff. 99.9% of your Bible was written by Jews. 90-something percent of your Bible was written about the country of Israel, and in particular, the city of Jerusalem, either written about it or written from it. It is a particular place. You, some of you have a, may have a problem with that. Why would God pick? A, he's got to pick somebody, y'all. He's got to, so let's say he picks the Italians. Then we wouldn't like the Italians. Maybe some of you don't. We've got some Italians here. I know we like you. <laughs> the... the, the, the I mean, you've got a problem with the Jews, you just got a problem. He had to pick somebody, by the way. They paid dearly for, for that title of chosen people of God. They still are, and they will, as we saw in Daniel 7. Uh, there's, there's a lot coming for the Jews, but, but here, here's, here's just a broad brushstroke for you in case you want to understand what God is doing. The Jews are God's signal and timepiece. If you want to know in broad brushstrokes what God is doing, just simply observe the Jews. Whatever they're doing... Is what he's doing. Whatever they are, are they in their country? They happen to be. Happen to be there for almost 70 years now. That that should bells and whistles should be going. You should be passing out with emotionalism, but none of us are because we consider it no big deal. So so a, a people who the Bible says is the chosen people of God were exiled from their country 2,000 years ago, ceased to exist as a people, as a nation 2,000 years ago. And they have reconstituted as a nation, even after massive persecution, the Second World War and the Holocaust, such that they've reconstituted their own nation. They're now the fifth strongest army in the world over a piece of property that's no bigger than the Rio Grande Valley. They've restarted their language. They restarted their culture. They restarted their lives after 2,000 years and nobody's saying anything about it. It's like, what else are you missing out there? If that's, if that's a sign, and it is, and you're missing that sign, man, are you missing some stuff? I don't know what to do for you. I don't know what to do for us when we're missing this, guys. This is so significant. What is God up to? Look at the Jews. Stuff is happening. Pay attention. So, so this is a prophecy, first of all, to the Jews, through the Jews. Number two, it's a 490-year prophecy. Uh, back to verse 24, the first couple of words. Seventy weeks have been decreed. Now, that Seventy weeks is how long? Seventy times seven days, right? Well, that's not what that's saying. In the Jewish calendar, there were three different designations for weeks. If a Jew, you were speaking to him religiously in this day, they would, if you said, I'll be back in two weeks, they would say, what weeks are you talking about? What weeks are you talking about? I mean, seven, it's 14 days, right? Well, not in their culture. In their culture, there was a week of days in their calendar. There was a week of months. There was also a week of years. It's this third one that the angel Gabriel is referring to. Seventy weeks of years, or 490 years, he says, have been decreed for your people. And so, 90, 490 years. And so, understand that. This is, this is not a week of days, but a week of years. And it sums up many things and brings in, as it says here, everlasting righteousness. Let's, let's keep reading. Seventy weeks, verse 24, have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish... Notice the scope of this to finish transgression is transgression over. So none of you sinned this week, right? No. So this tells us we can, uh, we can, if you believe the word of God, I do. I hope you do. We can say on it, We can say confidently 490 years is not up. There's still a lot of transgression happening. Keep going to finish transgression as if we didn't understand to make an end of sin Has sin ended. Was I asleep? Because I'm thinking it hasn't ended. 490 years is not up. It's a simple interpretation. We know that. To make atonement for iniquity, we could argue that's been happening since Christ, right? To bring in everlasting righteousness, is that happening? If this is everlasting righteousness, I'm upset. Are you all upset? This is a mess we're living in. To seal up vision and prophecy, it's referring to the entire Old Testament, all the visions and prophecies that God made and all the predictions that he's made. Has that happened? No. To anoint the most holy place. So that's requiring that there be a holy place, that is a temple in Israel. Is there a temple in Israel today? No. So this is still st- stuff that tells us, stuff is a, is a theological term, stuff that tells us that 490 years have not been completed. And we're not going to concern ourselves with the 490, the full full 490 Because there is, the key to this interpretation is to understand that 483 years of the 490, that is 490 minus 7. So uh, one week of the 70 weeks is not contiguous. It's a floater. And it's going to be triggered by an individual we know as the Antichrist, and he's spoken of there in verses 26 and 27. Like I said, we're not going to get to that. But he's going to be doing something there that's going to start the clock ticking again, this final seven years. And it's going to be seven years. And the reason why I know it's going to last only seven years is because the 490 went to the day. Exactly. 400, I'm sorry, 483 went exactly to the day, 483 years. So if he took 483 years out of the 490 and it went to the day, what can we expect of the last seven? It's going to be to the day. But again, it's prophecy. It's still, we're still waiting on it. The 483 years, though, is not prophecy anymore. It's history. It was for Daniel prophecy. Daniel was sitting behind it in history, looking forward to it as prophecy. We're sitting forward of it now at the present, looking back to it as history. And hindsight is what? 2020. We've had a lot of years to analyze this thing. And guys, he nails it. Not Daniel, not Gabriel, but God. He puts it down. Verse, so it basically understand this. Verse 25, this is a very exact amount of time that's being spoken of here very specific mathematical prophecy of the 69 of the 70 weeks that are predicted or 40 and 83 years of the 490 years i'm going to be putting some things on the screen in a bit we're going to be doing some math and i know y'all's math i've tried to forget my math as well i've got a calculator on my phone why do i need math this is a great place by the way for us to put god to the test you're not supposed to put God to the test, right? Because it says it in the scriptures, unless God puts himself to the test in the scriptures, as in the case of a mathematical prophecy in which he predicts to the day, something that's supposed to happen 483 years later. If he does that, he's expecting that you're going to follow the timeline and come to the same conclusion instead of saying we shouldn't put God to the test. We shouldn't even pay attention to the 483 years. Now that's exactly what he does not say. Look at verse 25. So you are to know and discern. This is for you to know. It's for you to get. It's not hidden. It's not in a closet. It's not convoluted. It is straight up. Here's the knowing, discerning. You're to know and discern that, that, that from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That's a historical event marked on the calendar in history. Until Messiah the Prince is a very important term right there. The only time you'll ever find Jesus referred to in this title Mashiach Nagid, it says in the Hebrew, Messiah the Prince. He's not called that anywhere else. It's a very exalting type of, t- type of title that they're given here. It's a very special, very uh, precise title that's given, given to Jesus here. So from the, time of, from the time to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, it says there will be seven weeks of years and 62 weeks Of years, and Jerusalem, speaking of, will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. An amazing, precise, mathematical prophecy requires us to know several things. First of all, it is a day to be understood. It says in verse 25, part 8 Know and discern. So if you ain't knowing it and discerning it, are you doing what it says? Of course not. Know it and discern it. I'm telling you right now, you're going to go home. You're never going to be told this again because you're going to know it and discern it, right? So, number one, know and discern. Number two, the trigger that starts the clock, as it says here, is the decree to restore and build Jerusalem. If we only knew when that trigger was, then we can know when to expect Jesus, 483 years later. Do we know when that trigger was? Yes. Yes. We know it because not only historically, we know it because of extra biblical stuff, but it's in the Bible. Artaxerxes, 445 BC. You've got a whole book in the Bible concerning this decree. It's the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is serving Artaxerxes. He's the cupbearer to the king. He hears from his brothers that come back to Jerusalem that Jerusalem's walls are still torn down. The gates are still burned. He has this, this incredible experience in which he's so burdened and asking God that he, God would allow him to go back to restore the city, to rebuild the city. And not only does he get to go, he asks the king in Daniel in, in Nehemiah chapter 2, but not only does he do that, but he gets the entire funds of the kingdom to fund this project. So he's and he's there as a city official, I'm sorry, as a government official to do all these things. So a whole book of the Bible called Nehemiah is with reference to this particular event. It took place, King Artaxerxes, he was a Persian king in 445 BC. We know the date. So if we know the date when it begins, all we got to do is count 438,3 years later and bingo, we should have Jesus, right? That's exactly right. He pegs it. And I'm going to show you how well he pegs it. So we know the exact date. By the way, it works out to March 14th, 445 B.C. In case you don't know, we owe that thanks to a guy by the name of Sir Robert Anderson, head of Scotland Yard. He writes a book called The Coming King in which he publishes his findings. And he writes this book in 1894. The Jews knew this date very well. You Think about how important the calendar date is when you're allowed to go back to your country and rebuild your city and you get the fundings of a pagan government to do it. Do you think they got this on the calendar? Oh, it's a holiday. Everybody knows this date. Kids that can't read can quote you the date in which they can go back and rebuild their city and rebuild, rebuild the, the walls and the, and the gates and all that. Oh, my goodness. So, so let me ask you this. 483 years later, Jesus did show up, and they were not waiting for him. Why? They didn't believe him. I would submit to you that, that if, if there is a problem in this room, anybody got problems? Yeah, me, don't look up here. If we have problems, it's because we do not believe him. Now, I'm not saying if I ask you all to raise your hands, do you believe the Bible? Do you believe God? I think everybody would raise their hands whether they really mean it or not. Most of you would. You're here in church. You could be out on the beach fishing somewhere. I'm thinking you probably believe in God because here you are. I say that to say this. You would raise your hands and say it, but how? Uh, the, here we are in church. But you go out there and live. How do you live? You say you believe it. Demonstrate. Don't raise your hand in church. Show me by the way, and I should be showing you by the way that I live. See, I guarantee you that Jews, if if they were asked any portion of the scriptures, you can ask them today. Do you believe the Bible? Oh, absolutely, hundred percent. It's been inspired by God. But but when push comes to shove, and when the eating, you know, as they say. The proof of the pudding is the eating when the pudding when the pudding got ate, they weren't there. They didn't believe him. Or they would have been waiting on him. They didn't believe that God says what he means and means what he says. And it was a mistake. And boy did they ever pay for this mistake. So they just simply didn't believe him. Again, it's a mathematical prophecy. And it's required that we know several things in order to pin down the day in which this is spoken of. First of all, it requires us to be able to add. Can you add without taking off your shoes? Can you add? Where am I? Oh, sorry. I'm up there. It tells us that it's going to be 62 weeks plus seven weeks in verse 25. Take a look. 62 weeks plus seven weeks is 69. Isn't that right? This is not weeks of days. It's weeks of years. So we know it's going to be 483 years. I've been saying that. But we know that it is. It also requires that we know the date in which it starts. We've already know that. We know that historically, March 14, 445 B.C. So all we've got to have is March 14, 445 B.C. Add 483 years. Bingo, we get Jesus. First coming. The, the third requirement is maybe a little bit more difficult, but it, it, we have to accomplish it. It requires us to know the number of days in the year. How many days are there in a year? 365. That's what you think. You see, that's why, that's why the math won't work. Because we're talking about a biblical year. The biblical year, actually all calendars prior to 700 B.C. were all 360 day years. Something happened, we don't know what, changed the earth's orbit around the sun. By the way, a circle is how many degrees? 360 degrees. So it makes sense that if we made a complete orbit around the sun, it would also be 360 degrees. And apparently there was a time in the past in which the earth would orbit the sun in 360 days but something happened cataclysmically that set us back. And now we have to have 365 plus a leap year every four years. And all it's, something's messed up. I mean, the world's unwinding. Things are coming apart. We don't know what it is. and uh, But weirdness has happened somewhere back there. All we know is that 700 B.C., all the calendars, the Mayans, the Aztecs, the, the Romans, the Sumerians, the Jews, the Chinese, the, the Persians, they all changed their calendars somewhere around 700 B.C., And they went to 365, some added, some subtracted. They did all kinds of stuff in order to accommodate for the fact that the the year wasn't ending after 360. Anyway, back to our focus here. Biblical year is 360 days. So we got to have the days because when God says he's going to be back in 483 years, is he talking about within a couple of weeks of 483? If I told you I was going to be back here in five years, what does that mean? That means if I show up sometime in the next five years, you'd think I was awesome, wouldn't you? I don't have control over my life. I mean, I would love to be here. I would say five years from now, I'm going to be here. I'll be back here. But whether I'm here or not has a a lot of factors that are outside of my control. On the other hand, if God says he's going to be back in 483 years, you better be standing there the day, the day when 483 years clicks, because God is not a deal. He does not deal in approximations. I would say approximately five years. Yeah, God doesn't work in approximations. The best we can do is approximations. God works way beyond that. So 483 years at 360 days per year gives us, here's the days, 173,880 to the day. Now again, this is a great place to put God to the test because he puts himself out there. He puts himself out there. So we're working an equation. And here's our equation. We come up with these, 1,173,880 1,173,880 days some commentators that I don't like have said this is about the time of Jesus. About the time of Jesus? About? I don't think God deals in approximations. That is not an about date. That's an exact date. And in fact, if we adding information together, here's what we find that we are to expect. Here's here's your final conclusion. March 14th, 445 B.C. plus 173,880 days equals April 6, 32 A.D. Which happens, by the way, to fall within the life and ministry of Jesus. In fact, it falls within the final week of his life, the same week in which he's he died and rose again. But what day is that? Again, we pick all kinds of days. His death, his resurrection, all this stuff. Uh, it's not that date. It's very interesting. Going now, moving forward to the New Testament, it's very interesting that Jesus spends a lot of his ministry keeping a secret. Here's the secret: he was not, he would not allow them to push him forward as king, even though he was king of the Jews. Every bit, he was crucified with that name over his head. He was in every way king of the Jews, and yet every time in most of his ministry, somebody tried to push him forward as king. As an example, he feeds the five thousand. Remember the story. It says immediately they were going to make him king. I mean, the guy took five loaves and two fish and feeds 5,000 men plus women and children. This is the king, right? This is definitely the king. And so they're moving forward. There's thousands of people there that are moving forward to make him king. It says he dispersed them, sent his disciples across the lake, and he went and isolated himself away from them, not accepting because why? I mean, aren't you the king? It says in john that his brothers were having a problem his physical brothers like he had half brothers and sisters born to mary and joseph hope that's not a new thing to anybody half brothers and sisters and his brothers would come to him and says why don't you go and present yours if you're the king put yourself out there he says anytime he said to his brothers "Any time is good for you but you do not know the times and dates of my father another place in the synagogue at capernaum he's in there just going to church And this guy with a demon comes in front of him and says, I know who you are, the demon speaking through this man. I know who you are. You're the son of God. Now, have you ever thought about this as a demon? Does that seem counterproductive? Isn't that true? Yes, he was the son of God. So why, unless this demon, I don't know, he got up some, he just hadn't taken his meds or something. Why? Why? (laughs) Why would he be actually telling the truth about Jesus? Would, I mean, it seems more likely that he would be saying, you're not the son of God. But in fact, he says, you are the son of God. And, 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 and we're backed up with this. He says, you're the son of God. And Jesus, it says, shushes him. So, so what's happening here? Aren't you or are you not the king? Well, of course he was. And even though it was a demon, isn't he right? Of course he was. So what was the demon up to unless, unless, listen, he's trying to preempt something that God has got a date on? Unless. Hmm. So there came a day in the ministry of Jesus in which he'd spent his career basically avoiding the whole exaltation as king. but there came a day, four days before his crucifixion, that he not only not only claimed that he was king, he, he orchestrates it. Luke chapter 19, verse 30 tells us the beginning of the orchestration. He comes into Jerusalem. We call it the triumphal entry. We call it Palm Sunday, right? He comes into it. He wouldn't allow himself to be king. Wouldn't allow anybody to acknowledge him as king. And then all of a sudden, total change, total reversal. So yesterday you wouldn't let a demon call you king, but today you're getting a donkey together for the whole thing. What's going on? I'm scratching my head as a disciple, right? Go into the village. He tells his the disciples ahead of you. There you'll enter and you will find a colt tied in which no one has ever sat and it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say the Lord has need of it. So he starts putting these things together, stuff he hadn't done before, capable of it, but he didn't do it. They were waiting for him to start making a move as a king. And all of a sudden, boom, he starts doing it. Why today? Why today? They find it exactly like this. They bring the colt back to him. You know the story. He gets up on the colt. They place coats down in front of him. They place palm branches and leaves out in front of him. They start singing Hosanna, which is a, which is out of the out of the halal out of the, halal, out of the out of the Psalms. They acknowledge him as King of Israel, and and and, and uh, come into our rescue in case we miss the bad theology or the Pharisees because they recognize that the crowds are saying that he's the king, and of course they got a massive problem with that. And so they come to him and says, you better stop these guys. Notice what they say. Crowd said, he said to a teacher, rebuke your disciples. Make them stop saying this stuff. But Jesus answered and said, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Now, just previous to this, he's shushing people who saying this about him. What What is it about today? What is it about that day? It goes on. Chapter 40. I'm sorry, chapter, uh, verse 41 and 42 of the same chapter. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. Why that day? This is the thousandth time he's been in and out of Jerusalem. We find him there as a 12-year-old. We find there are other places in his ministry. Why is he weeping on this day? Unless this is a special day. Saying, if you had only known what? In this day. Even you, the things which make for peace. But now, when is now? That day, now they're hidden from your eyes. He's just riding in Jerusalem on a donkey. Here, they haven't even crucified him. They're singing to him. He hasn't been crucified or resurrected. He hasn't been betrayed by Judas yet. It's four days for all that stuff, and yet he's pronouncing. He's saying it's over with today. Today's the day in which I'm cutting off our relationship. Today's the day, and watch. Today's the day that officially is putting the death nail in your your exile for the Jews. For the days will come upon you in which your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground. It's a a historic event. Five legions of Romans came against Jerusalem and against the country of Israel. They conquered hundreds of cities. They destroyed Jerusalem. They killed over a million Jews. They exiled the Jews from the country. They were stayed exiled until 1948. 2,000 years. Why? Why? They'll do all this, it says, surround you every side. They will levy you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you a stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. What day was that? It's the same day that Daniel had received as a prophecy 173,880 days before. Same day, they started ticking off. After the decree to restore and build Jerusalem, I want you to notice what he doesn't do is he doesn't now stop and pray to the father and say, God, can we just give him one more day? (laughs) One more day. I mean, isn't God gracious and merciful to us? Isn't he's a God of second chances? Yeah, but there comes a place where boom, the walls come down. I think 173,880 days is pretty good. That's more than a second chance, isn't it? One, One more day wouldn't have made a difference. You know, sometimes we look at people's lives and we say, Why is God so kind seemingly to this person and seemingly so harsh to this one? You don't know what God's up to. You've got no idea what He's doing. You have no idea what He's allowed them to see and put them through and what He's spoken to them about. And why is God coming down hard on this person, not this person? It's not for you to know. But believe me, you can trust Him. He knows what He's doing. Why was He being harsh to these people? Because I'm thinking 173,000 plus days is plenty. Way more than I would have given them, to be sure. So they're destroyed. And by the way, they don't return to their country, as we said earlier, until May of 1948. And just about a year before that, you know what happened in Israel? There was a very important event. Again, we, don't, we should be falling down in ecstasy over this stuff. The entire Old Testament, oldest copies of the Old Testament, otherwise known as the Dead Sea Scrolls, was discovered in the land of Israel, 1947. Guess which book was also among those scrolls? Daniel. Daniel was in there. Daniel, by the way, spelling out the same things that Jesus said on that day you should have known. But it will be taken away from you. And boy, boy, do they know what that's like, to be sure. So Jesus held them accountable for that day. Why? Because it said it. It said it. God, here's here's a takeaway for us. God means what he says, and he says what he means. God says what he means, what he says. And He says what he means. That's what he did back then. You suppose he's the same way today? You suppose he means it when he says that the wages of sin is death. You suppose he means that? I would, th- I, I, I'd be, I'd be a safe bet. You suppose he means it when he says that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. You don't have to be religious to get it. It's just free. It's a gift. How do you receive a gift? You say, well, "Thank you." I accept. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. You suppose he means that? Or is he just, is it not really the real interpretation? Because we can't really be sure about what God says. A lot of hoopla and ignorance going around like that. No, God says what he means. He means what he says. You suppose he means it when he says that he who has the Son, that is Jesus, has the life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life? Notice he doesn't say he who is not a Baptist does not have the life. He's not a Catholic does not have the life. He does not go to church on Sunday. He does not have the life. He doesn't say that. Either have Jesus or you do not. And if you do not, you do not have the life. And you will go to a place called hell, a very real place that God describes in very literal terms because God says what he means and means what he says. I want to ask if you would bow your heads and close your eyes when we think about the things that we've talked about this morning, this incredible prophecy that God has for us here teaches us such great lessons about how to interpret scripture and how to understand it. And uh, I would say more significant things. This is a matter of history for us. It's already done. Jesus has already come. He's already, he's already rode into Jerusalem. He's already, he's already been, he's already been betrayed. He's already been sacrificed for sins. He's already rose again to prove that he was not just some prophet, not just some teacher, but actually the savior and God has highly exalted him. God, I thank you so much that you've given us your word, and that you are a God of your word. I pray you would forgive us, God, when we've tried to make it into something that it's not, and and maybe maybe we just haven't put our back into it. Maybe it's not so much that we just haven't tried. We just no 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 sweat equity for us. We haven't really tried to understand it, but that we we trivialize your word and we place it into a rank of other quote supposedly holy writings and. We make it into something that it's not, or we measure on our, our um, other Bible studies and teachings, instead of just spending time directly in your word, not realizing that when we're reading your word, it's you speaking to us, it's you. Who, who, could, who could call it out 483 years in advance and bring it, bring it to pass exactly to the day other than you? Such is the case with your entire word. Such is the case with everything that you say. It is exact whether we feel that way or not. It's not a matter of how we feel. It's a matter of fact. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for the privilege we have to understand it and the ability that we have through your Holy Spirit to do that. I pray, God, you bless us as we look into you today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptist.org.